The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. <coughs> Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you again. Now the only the hardcore, the real, the real people are <laughs> behind. <laughs> That's good. Huh? So now we get into the real Dhamma. We know we're messing around. <laughs> no, it's all the same. So we're just going to carry on where we left off. Huh? So that's great. And um, yesterday we were uh, starting to have a look at the uh, Potalia Sutta. Huh? And uh, we were looking at some of the things that I have normally don't look at uh, during a retreat because I have to leave some things out. So we had a bit of extra time, which was great. And now we're going to carry on. Uh, and um, after we're talking about here a person who is kind of giving up the affairs of the world uh, and what that means uh, according to him is one thing according to the buddha something else uh, and we've seen how cutting off one's affairs first of all means to live uh, virtuously yeah to give up all the excessive desires and give up the killing of living beings and all of those things uh, and now we're going to see how, how what it also means to kind of give up your attachment to worldly things. This is the second things uh, that comes here now. Uh, and uh, these are the seven similes that you find in the sutta. And these similes are spoken about also elsewhere in the suttas. Uh, this, this seem to have been a standard set used by the Buddha to point out the disadvantage of the sensory objects of the world. Uh, yeah, and therefore also the desire for those objects. Those two things obviously go together. If the objects themselves are no good, then the desire for them also doesn't make any sense. So desire and the objects of desire kind of go together. Uh, and this is one of those things about the, the, one of the uh, crucial words that is used in the sutta that you find uh, everywhere in the sutta is the word karma. Not kamma, but karma. Kamma is action. Karma is a sensory object or sensory desire. Yeah. And uh, this is this critical word used in these similes. And again, remember, it means both of these things. It means both the feeling of desire for these things or attachment to these things uh, and also the objects themselves. Yeah? And often it actually refers more to the object uh, than the experience of desire for these things. Uh, and this uh, sutta really only comes alive when you remember that distinction and you remember that double meaning. Uh, that's when it kind of starts to make better sense. So um, let's just fire away uh, with this uh, similes. Uh, and uh, maybe I can leave it there. Uh. So... Um, yeah, so uh, here the Buddha says he's going to continue with the uh, his his talk, and he what he comes up with next are these similes. Yeah, so we dive straight into these similes, and this is what the Buddha says: uh, Householders, suppose a dog weak with hunger uh, was hanging around a butcher's shop. Then a deft butcher or their apprentice uh, would toss them a skeleton scraped clean of flesh and smeared in blood. What do you think, householder, gnawing on such a fleshless skeleton? Uh, would that dog still get rid of its hunger? Uh, no, sir. Why not? Because that skeleton is scraped clean uh, of flesh and smeared in blood. That dog would eventually get weary and frustrated. Uh, in the same way, a noble disciple reflects. Uh, with a simile of a bone or skeleton, the Buddha said that sensual pleasures or sensual objects yeah, give little gratification and much suffering and distress, and they are all the more full of drawbacks. Having truly seen this with right understanding, they reject equanimity based on diversity and develop only the equanimity based on unity. Where all kinds of grasping to the world's material delights cease without anything left over. So um, these similes are then used, basically you can see here very clearly, to, to abandon the desire for the worldly things, yeah, worldly pleasures. You see the drawback, the disadvantage of suffering in those things, and then you gradually give up that uh, desire for those things. 
And gradual is really the critical word here. Yeah, When you read this symbolism, the idea, and this is the reason why I put it under right view, because the idea here is to reflect on these things and to gradually grow in the understanding of the limitations of these things. So your view is gradually getting, getting straightened out. And as your view gets straightened out, your values, the things that you prioritize in the world, the thing that means something to you, yeah, they change as well. So remember that these things are not something to necessarily to be acted upon straight away. They are more like reflections to be used so that you gradually, uh, and, and you will understand these similes, they will be pretty obvious why they are, must be true, but still we need to th reflect on them to kind of give them a deeper significance. So the, uh, this then is about this dog, yeah, who was hanging around the butcher shop. You know what dogs are like with big eyes looking at the butcher shop. Please, yeah, pleading with the butcher, give me some nice <laughs> meat or whatever. But the butcher, the butcher is not going to give nice meat to a dog. The butcher has to make a living. He's just going to give the scraps to the poor dog. And the dog is never going to find satisfaction in those scraps. In fact, you can imagine... If you are a dog, you're looking for meat to give some real satisfaction, and all you get is a bone with blood. Yeah, you get the taste of this. Yeah, wow, this tastes so nice, but there's no real satisfaction there. Yeah, the craving becomes even more powerful. It's even more kind of devastating that you don't actually get that real fulfillment through the real food. And eventually, the dog, after licking that bone, yeah, realizes that there's nothing to be got here in this shop, runs off to the next one. The next butcher is exactly the same as the previous one because butchers are all the same. They are, <laughs> like most people in the world, they want to make money. You have to, yeah, you have to make money, you have to feed your family, whatever. And the dog hanging out in front of the next shop. And then on and on from one shop to the next one, yeah, going round and round and round. And then eventually uh, the dog dies. Uh, and when the dog dies, it gets reborn as a little puppy in its next life. Uh, because once you are a dog, you tend to continue on as dogs. Uh, and as soon as you get reborn as a puppy, your mummy takes you to the butcher shop. Uh. <laughs> and then you start again from scratch and next put it up. Yeah? It's kind of, when you think about it, it's kind of terrible, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's just really awful. Uh, and it's utterly always craving, being craving is the master. As it says in the Sutta, Tanha Dasa. Tanha Dasa means slave to craving. Craving is the boss, holding you by the nose, dragging you around from one thing to the next one, never finding satisfaction. Yeah, this poor dog. And you continue from life to life in this way, because this is all you know. Looking for happiness where you should, eventually you should find out, is not to be found. Always thinking satisfaction is going to be there, huh? never finding it, never learning your lesson. Huh? So this is the simile for what happens in human life as well. Huh? Yeah, It is not quite as stark in human life as it is for a dog, huh? but it's essentially the same thing. Huh? Running around, searching for the happiness and the worldly things, uh, yeah, always searching in the same place, never learning our lesson huh? that is not going to give satisfaction. Huh? from one thing to the next one, yeah, dreaming about the next sensual pleasure, the next relationship, the next car, the next house, the next advancement in your job, the next, um, uh, you know, increase in your personal status, whatever it is, uh, yeah, and never actually finding that satisfaction. Eventually the penny should drop. Uh, maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. Uh, is there another place to, uh, to look for satisfaction? Uh, and this is exactly what the Buddha teaches us. There is another place where you can find real satisfaction. You can fill that hole inside, that kind of thing which drives you on. Why are we driven on? Because there is a lack, psychological lack inside of us. We don't feel fulfilled. This is what drives us on, yeah, this lack of fulfillment inside. So how can you find that fulfillment? And the answer is that if you practice a a spiritual kind of life, yeah, a life with a different kind of meaning. Yeah? You can actually can actually find that fulfillment inside her, yeah? and it's not hard to see how that works. Uh, if you uh, reflect on what it means uh, to gain a some kind of spiritual happiness, uh, yeah, whether it is just through uh, living morally, or it is through an act of generosity, or it, especially through meditation practice, uh, is a different kind of happiness than the happiness of the worldly things. Uh, 
the worldly things are always associated with craving here. Always associated with not really finding any satisfaction. Because how can you satisfy a psychological lack with external things? It's just like papering over something which is still there. But when you find the happiness uh, inside, through living well, well that actually goes straight to that lack inside. Because it is an internal happiness that has nothing to do with external things. Yeah, you're filling up that hole directly, immediately, by finding a deeper pleasure. This is what you, we can call call a spiritual happiness, if you like, call it whatever you want, doesn't matter. But you feel an internal psychological happiness that is independent of external things. That does fill in that hole inside, the void inside, that scratching inside, which never kind of gets satisfied. Now it gets satisfied. And then you take that and you keep on working on it. First through living well, doing the right thing, and then through your meditation practice. And then as you practice your meditation, yeah, you find the joy and happiness of meditation, which gets more and more profound. And this is why craving stops in meditation when it gets really deep, why it is eradicated altogether, because you find a satisfaction which actually is entirely fulfilling. If the satisfaction is entirely fulfilling, how can you crave anymore? Craving doesn't, ma- doesn't make any sense if you are entirely satisfied. This is what happens in meditation practice. And eventually you reach a state of samadhi, which is entirely 100% fulfilled. You don't need anything anymore. Because you don't need anything anymore. There's no craving. But there's no craving. You can sit there forever. Perfectly satisfied. There's no need for any movement anymore. The reason we move around in the world is this internal movement to find satisfaction, which actually cannot be found in that world. And then one day you sit down on your bottom, and lo and behold, there it is, the thing that you have been looking for all along. And then you know this is actually what I was looking for, but I was always looking in the wrong place. That world outside could not give rise to this because it didn't deal with the core problem of the emptiness and feeling of dissatisfaction inside. It's kind of beautiful, yeah, and when you think about it, it's actually quite obvious when you, when you reflect on this. And um, so you change your values, you start moving in a different direction. Yeah, and you then uh, heading towards uh, the freedom from butchers. Uh, <laughs> yay, the butcher doesn't have the hold on me anymore. Hooray here. Yeah. Finally, I'm kind of heading in the right way here. Yeah. So that is the simile of the hungry dog. Yeah. So. Um, Dog is weak and hungry, yeah, like all of us, run, running around, trying to, craving, trying to find that sustenance, uh, never really finding it. Uh. These are quite stark similes, uh, but, um, and, uh, but obviously they, uh, hopefully they make some sense to you. And then uh, the consequences of that, having this right understanding, yeah, you will see, in other words, this has to do with the right view and understanding of the world. Uh, they reject the equanimity based on diversity. In other words, you reject the sensory world. Equanimity based on diversity just means that it is the kind of evenness of mind that you have in ordinary life. If you practice reasonably well on the Buddhist path, then you have a sort of evenness of mind because you have a degree of sensory strength there. But actually you need to go beyond that. It's not sufficient just to have the evenness of mind. You need to reject that sensory world altogether, you realize. And then you gain the equanimity based on unity, which is the equanimity of deep samadhi. That's what kind of the point of this. So uh, you're moving towards samadhi. This is what this thing is. And that is where the grasping to the world, world's material delight cease without anything left over. This is why it is said that you go beyond the sensory world in samadhi. Yeah? The sensory world, you don't care about it anymore. It doesn't matter because you find something far, far more satisfying than the sensory world. This is the promise of the spiritual path. Yeah? It's kind of awesome promise. Something really deeply satisfying, more than anything you can ever find in the world outside. No wonder people practice this path when you think about it. Okay, let's uh, carry on. Let's move on to the next uh, uh, simile. Suppose a vulture or crow or hawk 
was to grab a lump of meat and fly away. Other vultures, crows and hawks would keep chasing it, pecking and clawing. What do you think, householder, if that vulture, crow or hawk doesn't quickly let go of that lump of meat? Wouldn't that result in death or death-like suffering for them? Yes, sir. And then you have the same uh, continuation as in the previous one. Yeah, and You end up, you give up the equanimity based on diversity and you go to the unity of samadhi instead. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, what we see in the world as well. Yeah, Whenever you get something that is nice, other people tend to want the same thing. Here it is a bird, a piece of meat is kind of a nice simile for sensual pleasures. And uh, uh, the idea here, of course, is that if you don't let go of that, you get attacked by others. In the same way, we're always fighting over the sensual objects in the world, uh, fighting over the same partners, uh, fighting over the same promotions, uh, fighting over the same inheritance, fighting over the last piece of cake, if you are a child, maybe, fighting over the toys, fighting. We're always competing about things. Yeah, The world is actually set up for competition. Uh, Kind of our modern society and the modern economy is based on the idea of competition. It's like fighting with each other, yeah? And of course, that competition and fighting always leads to a degree of ill will, leads to a degree of problems. And this is kind of the power of this particular simile, is the understanding that the sensory world, because we are all uh, trying to get hold of the same sensory objects because we're all in competition over the cake. The cake is only so large, yeah? The kind of famous cake with the slices. The cake is only so large. That means if I get a larger slice, you get a smaller one. We try to, of course, to expand the cake by having economic growth. But even with economic growth, there's a limit to how much you can have. And because of that, there's always going to be competition over these things. And uh, because of that, the sensory world is inherently fraught with violence, uh, yeah, with competition, uh, with um, uh, all of these negative things. You cannot have a sensory world uh, without that negative uh, side, uh, yeah, of violence, of fighting, of competition, of uh, you know, getting the better of the other person. Uh, these things are inherently the same because we feel like we are owners of that world. Other people too feel that they have a, should have access to it. Uh, and then we fight over those things. Uh. And this is, I think, quite obvious. A lot of the, even the wars in the world, uh, there is some element there of fighting over resources, uh, fighting over kind of controlling things. Uh. It is true in our private lives. Uh, arguments are very often had uh, over material things. Uh, yeah. And um, sometimes it's kind of terrible how far we're willing to go in f for this. Uh, and to me, this is such a dark side yeah, of the sen sensory world, the dark side, the underbelly of the sensory world, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the violence and the, uh, the uh, aggression that always is part and parcel of that. Uh, but the spiritual world is the exact opposite uh, because the spiritual world is not about external things. Uh, they're not about the common ground uh, that we all have in common. Yeah? They, it's not about the com common things for humanity. The inner world is our personal thing. Yeah? And because we are finding satisfaction inside instead of outside, uh, it means that there is no competition there anymore. Uh, yeah, quite obviously. So the spiritual life does not lead to that kind of competition. It does not lead to that kind of aggression. It does not lead ultimately to fighting. In fact, it leads to the opposite because those qualities that you develop inside are qualities that are precisely the opposite of a competition. Yeah, there are qualities of kindness, qualities of actually wanting to help others, wanting to support them. Yeah, this is exactly what those inner qualities are. So it actually leads to more harmony in the world. It's the exact opposite of what you find when you search for the sensory pleasures outside. Fascinating, isn't it? How, this, how these things are so opposite. And um, there are some very nice suttas where the Buddha talks about this in much more detail. One of those suttas is the uh, Mahanidana Sutta, uh, the uh, great sutta on causation. What the Buddha talks about is basically about dependent origination, uh, this famous teaching of the Buddha. 
And uh, there he talks about the dependent origination of fighting and violence. And he shows how starting out from desire for the sensory things of the world, uh, yeah, we get things, we hold on to them, we make them mine, and then we protect them. Uh, and it inherently is inherent in that world uh, that there will be <coughs> conflict, there will be violence, there will be all of these kind of things. Uh, uh, and uh, this is kind of as an expansion, in a sense, of this particular idea, yeah, the idea that uh, uh, these things are inherently problematic. Yeah. Okay. So that is the simile of the lump of meat. And um, so I should really be results in death or death-like suffering. I'm not sure what deadly suffering is, but death-like suffering, I think, is the really the appropriate translation there. But anyway, let's go on to the next one. Suppose a person uh, is carrying a blazing grass torch uh, and he was to walk against the wind. What do you think, householder? If that person doesn't quickly let go of that blazing grass torch, wouldn't they burn their hands or arms or other limb resulting in death or death-like suffering for them? Yes, sir. So now we have the idea that sensual objects of the world are considered like a blazing grass torch. The sensual pleasures are looking pretty bad, aren't they? It was first like the hungry dog, then the uh, skeleton, now the blazing grass torch. Jeepers. Uh, and it gets worse, I have to warn you. This is just the beginning. Yeah, This is just the start of these things. Uh, it's kind of it's powerful stuff, and it, and it, in a sense, this is what makes it interesting because you you wonder is the Buddha exaggerating? Maybe he's kind of trying to make a point by exaggerating a bit, but that's not really how the Buddha works. Yeah, he doesn't really exaggerate. If he says something, well, that he means that. So these similes should be taken seriously. They're not just uh, you know over the top. And this is why it's so hard to. Get and this is what shows you a little bit about if you have faith in the Buddha's teaching. It shows you that you're willing to put your own ideas just to one side for a while and try to understand what the Buddha is saying. Maybe he has a point, and then gradually, gradually, you start to understand what is going on here. So it is important to have that openness of mind to think that things that may seem completely outrageous actually they turn out to be some truth there. So what is going on here? A grass torch, yeah, it, it obviously has some benefit. You can see, yeah, just like essential pleasures have some delight in them. Yeah, obviously we enjoy essential pleasures. It's important to make that point. It, it's not that they are entirely suffering, otherwise we would never enjoy them. Of course we enjoy essential pleasures. Uh, so this is just looking at the other side of things. Uh, this is one of the things the Buddha does. He talks about the three aspects of any anything. Uh, the three aspects are the asada, the adinava, and the nisarana. This is Nisarana is over here. <laughs> and the asada is the gratification or the delight in things. The, ad, the adinava is the negative side. yeah, And then the Nisarana is the escape when you understand that the negative side is worse. So everything in this world has those three aspects to them. And of course, that is true also of sensual pleasures. And that is precisely why we need to evaluate them carefully, precisely because we already know the enticing side of these things. So now we need to look at the other side. So the grass torch, yeah, it's helpful. You can see here. So there is an advantage in the grass torch. But then it is also has the downside, especially when you go against the wind. What does it mean to go against the wind? Well, what it means in this case is like if you have a sensory object, yeah, got a new car, yeah, wow, this new car is so nice. Uh, this fancy new BMW, I don't know if any one of you drives fancy BMWs, but I've, I've driven in some fancy cars in my life, and some of them are just amazing, like spaceships inside almost. Uh, and um, <laughs> so I... Uh, 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 you know, and then you get really attached to whatever it is that you have. Maybe a car, don't get maybe so attached to a car, but say maybe your house or some really nice possession you have. And if nothing else, at least your partner in life, yeah? You get really, very easy to get really attached if you have a nice partner in life. So you, and that is what holding it against the wind means. We are taking these material possessions or the possessions that we have and we are using them in the wrong way. We are attaching to them rather than just using them for what they are. Yeah, that is the problem. That is holding it against the wind. So as soon as you attach to something, 
What does that mean? You're saying, may I suffer? That's what you're saying the moment you're attached. Oh, please, let me suffer. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? Because the moment you attach, you know it is going to be impermanent. And if you attach to something which is impermanent, you're going to have suffering. That's just how it has to be. It can't be any other way. So um, this is what is going on here. So when you hold that grass torch, make sure you hold it downwind. Don't attach to things too firmly. Yeah, That is really the right way of doing this. So how can we overcome that attachment in our lives? Uh, the first thing to understand is that you cannot just get rid of attachment. That's impossible. Huh? Yeah, it is, that, that is what life is about. That's what the sense of self is about, is having attachments. So don't just try to give up attachments. I always like when I hear Buddhist people they say, oh yeah, I, I should be a good Buddhist. I shouldn't have any attachments. It doesn't work like that. Yeah? You can't just say, I'm not going to have any attachments. So what we have to do, we have to kind of almost like develop out of that and that development is twofold. One of the things is to find a different kind of happiness. If you have a different kind of happiness, then your attachments will naturally be less. Yeah. So you find a, a, a certain pleasure in living well instead, uh, in living in a positive way with the people around you, in doing your very best. Even if you're just living an ordinary life, you can still add a lot of spiritual practice to that ordinary life. You can make that ordinary life into something far more than just making a living or having a family here. You can make it very, uh, add that spiritual dimension to the ordinary life by how you treat other people, uh, how you deal with things, yeah? And as you do that, as you add that dimension to your ordinary life, uh, you will find that your attachments to the things in the world become less uh, because you depend on those things less for your happiness, uh, for your satisfaction, for meaning, for purpose, and all of these kind of things, uh. And it doesn't mean that you become a callous son of a, no, you become a kind of a, <laughs> a bad person. Yeah, that, that, that's not what it means at all. It just means that you actually become a better person because you deal with people uh, in a better way uh, and with the world, your family and everyone in a better way. Uh. So this is how you gradually overcome this. So you contemplate the simile of the, of the grass torch or all these other similes here. You understand the danger in these things. You develop your mind in a new way. And as you do that, gradually, 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 you get a different viewpoint. You emerge from this problem to some extent. Your attachments get less. Okay. Simile of the grass torch, nitti tang. Nitti tang means finished, end. Bikku patimogang, nitti tang. So, um, okay. Do you have that word in Sinhala, nitti tang? In, in Sinhala, does that exist? Okay. What is the Sanskrit equivalent of nitti tang here? That doesn't sound like Nittitang here, yeah? Anyway, okay, we're getting sidetracked. So um, let us come on to the next one here. So this is a, this is a really challenging one. This is one of my favorites, uh, be precisely because it is challenging here. <laughs> Suppose there was a pit of glowing coals deeper than a man's height, full of glowing coals that neither flamed nor smoked, then a person would come along who wants to live and doesn't want to die, who wants to be happy and recoils from pain. Then two strong men would grab him by the arms and drag him towards the pit of glowing coals. What do you think, householder? Wouldn't that person writhe and struggle to and fro? Yes, sir, why is that? For that person knows if I fall into that pit of glowing coals, that would result in my death or death-like suffering here. Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, and then the Buddha goes on, I should have maybe left all the, the, the subsequent things on as well, because the Buddha goes on to say, well, the Buddha has compared yeah, sensual objects to a glowing pit of coals. <laughs> so that is kind of, that is really challenging. How can the sensual pleasures of the world be compared to a glowing pit of coals? It's hard to really really see that isn't it uh, uh, you have a you know whatever it is that you have what is beautiful in your life a nice relationship or whatever glowing pit of coal is really difficult to understand uh, so to understand this you have to 
strive to try to look at the world in an entirely new way. That's really the only way. And uh, the way to understand this is actually really mentioned in another sutta, which I often talk about at this particular point. It's called the Magandhya Sutta. Maybe I don't have to read it out. I can just uh, explain it to you. And uh, in this sutta, uh, the Buddha is talking to a man. This is a, a wanderer. Yeah, the, a, India is full of wanderers, spiritual people who wander around practicing some kind of spiritual path. Uh, but this person's spiritual path was just indulging in sensual pleasures. Uh, yeah, that was kind of his spiritual life. Uh, Buddha is not all that impressed yeah, with this kind of spiritual life, you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> sounds good, doesn't it? You can indulge in spiritual, in, 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 in the sensory objects of the world and also practice a spiritual life. It sounds like what most people want to do. Uh. So uh, the Buddha explains to him, yeah, well, you know, the, 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 you are looking at this in the wrong way. Uh. And then he says to him, well, I'll give you a simile to try to explain to you how this works. Uh. Suppose there is a leper. Yeah, you know leprosy, right? This is really awful disease where you get sores on your fingers and it's incredibly, incredibly itchy apparently. Yeah, really, really, really itchy. And then you have kind of maggots in your wounds and it's just really it's terrible disease. And and uh, so in India, there were lepers at that time. I think there still are lepers in India now. Maybe not so many, but still they exist. So the Buddha said, suppose there is a leper. Yeah, and the leper, because he, his itching is so bad, he will go to a fire and he goes to the fire and he puts his hand and his limbs over the fire to burn his limbs to get rid of the itchiness. Uh, cauterizing his limbs, I think they call it there. Uh, yeah, you literally burn your limbs uh, over a glowing charcoal pit, just like here. Uh. And uh, then he finds a kind of satisfaction in that. Yeah, Even though he's actually burning his limbs, he find it, finds a degree of satisfaction. Uh. And then the Buddha says, well, suppose that that leper uh, finds a doctor. Uh, the doctor gives him a medicine that gets rid of the leprosy. And it's then the Buddha then says to Magandhya, well, Magandhya, if that leper, uh, if that person who previous was a leper, would he still go to a burning charcoal pit and burn his limbs over that charcoal pit? And uh, Magandhya says, of course not. Why not? Because, uh, you know, he doesn't have that itchiness anymore. And the Buddha asked him, well, how do you explain that? And the way you explain that is because uh, previously uh, the fire was just as hot previously uh, when he was a leper, uh, but because his faculties were distorted, uh, because it couldn't see things really as they actually were, yeah, distorted through the itchiness, uh, it felt something that actually is painful, felt delightful. Uh. You're actually burning yourself, but it feels delightful because the other illness, the other sickness is kind of... Uh, so bad. And then the Buddha says, well, that's exactly what's happening with sensual pleasures. Yeah? Sensual pleasures are just like that. Our faculties are distorted. We cannot see clearly. We're actually burning our limbs. We're actually burning our minds in this way without really realizing what we're doing. And if you withdraw from those sensual pleasures, only then can you really understand what is going on. What is that fire? That fire is craving. That's the fire. Yeah, we're burning with craving. Yeah. And that craving is actually unpleasant uh, because craving is a restlessness of the mind. It's an agitation. Uh, it's something which actually is inherently unpleasant. Uh, if you are free from the sensory desires, uh, you can see that it is inherently unpleasant, the craving. Yeah. But you cannot see that when you are in the midst of it. Uh, when we are in the midst of it, it actually feels delightful. Yay, craving. I'm going to run around the world. I'm going to uh, create, you know, make all of these good things for myself and have a nice house and have a nice relationship and have whatever else it is. Hooray! Craving is mine. Yeah, and I will enjoy myself in the world. Not realizing that actually it is painful. Your perception is distorted. It's like smoking. Yeah, I think smoking is a really good simile for this. So I don't know if you have ever smoked, but when I was young and foolish, occasionally I would have a cigarette. Yeah, and it was terrible, absolutely awful. But to be cool, yeah, there's a cost to being cool. Yeah, especially when you're young. So you gotta, you know, you gotta have a, the occasional cigarette, especially at the party. Yeah, and and sometimes these terrible, really bad cigarettes. And I would kind of cough in secret. <laughs> you know, and it was just really really bad but once you are addicted to cigarettes uh, yeah and uh, we all probably know people who have been addicted to cigarettes uh, 
It's just so delightful to have a cigarette. Yeah, wow, feels so nice because the craving is so incredibly powerful. And just to get rid of the craving, yeah, you will have the cigarette. And uh, it feels nice, but actually it is exactly the same taste as it was before. Yeah, it is still the same kind of awful thing. It hasn't really changed. And so you have the cigarette to get rid of the craving. In the same way, we chase the sensory objects of the world, all these things, often just to get rid of the craving. The craving is like an irritation. Yeah, And then we get rid of it. And we think we're doing something delightful, but all we're really doing is just getting rid of the craving very often. That's the delight. Yeah, The craving is a problem, we get rid of it, and we think we're doing something useful. But of course the craving then re-arises, and it kind of carries on and on and on like that. Just like a smoker. Yeah. You get rid of the cigarette. Wow, smoking is so nice. And the craving comes back and you smoke some more. Uh, eventually you die of cancer. Uh, that's kind of the uh, how that works. Uh, so um, it's very hard to see this uh, because craving is so close to us. Uh, and one of the reasons why it is so hard to see is because uh, we also identify with doing. Uh, we delight in doing. Yeah. We were talking the other day about our sense of identity uh, happening in different areas. You can identify with certain perceptions or feelings. Uh, you can even identify with the body sometimes. Uh, you can certainly identify with awareness itself, just being aware. Uh, but we also identify, tend to identify very strongly with the doer. Yeah, I am the doer. I'm the creator. Uh, I'm the person who gets things done. Uh, I'm sure you all have had some identification like that sometimes. It feels nice, yeah, you've done something, and you get out there and you do things. And some people are compulsive doers, they feel alive when they do, yeah. So this is a very strong sense of identity that is there. And of course, when craving, one of the reasons why we delight in craving is because it gives us a motivation to get the doer going yeah so we feel alive craving actually makes us feel alive we indulge that identity of doing of, of the doer inside uh, and then we feel good about it uh. this is part of the problem this is one of the reasons why it is so hard to see here uh, yeah so the uh, opposite then of this is the opposite is that when we calm down uh, and you become really really peaceful in meditation and you start to see that the doer actually is a pain, yeah, it is a problem, because the doer, this restlessness actually is unpleasant and is far, far more superior to be completely still and peaceful. Yeah, that is a true sense of satisfaction, a true sense of happiness, whereas all the other stuff actually is problematic. And then you start to understand why craving is a problem. You start to understand how it burns you, how it drives you along. Again, tanhadasa, a slave to craving. Craving is there with the whip, driving you on in the world. You think you are in charge. This is the real me. I'm just exercising the me yeah, who likes to do her. No, craving is in charge. Craving you is driving your, you along. And you don't really understand what, is doing, what you're doing. And you're even to the point where you identify with the craving. I am this craving. I am the doer in my life. And in this way, you can start gradually to see why the Buddha is talking about this in this way, yeah? This deep sense, this kind of this uh, thing that uh, we uh, uh, look at completely in the wrong way here. Uh, and then you start to turn around and you start to get an understanding of what is happening here. Uh. Sometimes you may have very strong cravings, uh, yeah? And those very strong cravings are incredibly compelling and compulsive. Uh. They make you act, uh, they make you do. Uh, and uh, uh, it's very hard at that time to see that this actually is a, a kind of suffering. Well, you, you can see that at that times, but uh, uh, to really fully comprehend what is going on takes this kind of simile. So there you are, the simile of the uh, glowing uh, pit of coals. Yeah, the glowing coals. And uh, so next time you see a nice car, just think uh, glowing pit of coals, glowing pit of coals. Uh, and then you, <laughs> something like that. Uh. Anyway, so let's kind of move on to the next one. Um, suppose a person was to see delightful parks, delightful woods, delightful meadows and lotus ponds in a dream. But when they woke up, they couldn't see them at all. 
yeah obviously when you wake up it's all gone yeah it's all not no longer there and then the buddha says in the same way the buddha has compared sensual pleasures to a dream yeah it, and uh, the idea here is that we tend to think about sensual pleasures we tend to have an idea about what they are like we tend to think how in the future when i get this relationship yay i'll be happy yeah this person is going to satisfy me yay these possessions this career is going to satisfy me when i get that career and i really get into it and i get that status or whatever then i'll be really satisfied or whatever else it is in the world the worldly pleasures yeah you will get full satisfaction when you have those things whatever it is do you of course not yeah it is like a dream it's like this idea of the future that never actually really happens in that way when you get there it is quite different from what the dream was like yeah that relationship okay it is nice for a while and uh, but then relationships always never really turn out exactly the way you think they are going to be that person doesn't have all those qualities that you read into them uh, they also have other qualities they have a downside there's a, no no one in this world is going to be perfect and if they are perfect they're not going to want to be in a relationship with you anyway <laughs> Yeah, it's for many reasons. One of the reasons because perfect people are arahants. Yeah, arahants don't get into relationships. That's one of the one of the reasons. Uh, they're not not that silly. <laughs> so um, it's a dream. Yeah, it's a dream that never comes true. Huh? And I know that very well from my own life. Yeah, when I was young, I had an idea about the future, what I was going to be. I never dreamt about being a monk, I can tell you that. Uh, There's all kinds of other things I was dreaming about, and of course, utterly, completely wrong. Uh, so um, look, look at that, look at the discrepancy between the dream, because the dream is what drives so much of the craving, drives so much of the movement, uh, and compare that to the reality of what it actually feels like. Uh, and you start to see that there's usually a very big discrepancy there between the two. Huh? We're not really realistic about the pleasures of the world. Uh, we don't really want to see them as they are. And the reason we don't want to is because we have a vested interest in those things. Uh, these are my things. I want to get them. Uh, this is my happiness. And because you take these things to be your happiness, uh, you cannot really see them clearly here. Uh, only when you overcome the desire, and this is why overcoming the five hindrances is so important on the Buddhist path. Uh, when you overcome those five hindrances, which includes the desire for the sensory objects of the world, uh, only then can you see clearly, yeah? because the vested interest in those objects has disappeared. Uh, as long as the vested interest is there, your mind is going to be distorted. Uh. That is why we have laws in society, yeah? companies are not allowed to kind of just... Uh, you know, to do things in their own way because they have a vested interest in their own profit uh, and they're going to think that they're doing the right thing while actually everyone else understands that they're just trying to make money, yeah, and they are kind of uh, distorted in the way they present their own products or whatever. You need someone neutral to look at those things. Uh, in the same way, you need a neutral mind to be able to understand what is going on in the world. Uh, so investigate that uh, and see that th this is problematic. Yeah? The simile of the dream, yeah, the reality is very different from what these things seem like. Yeah. Next simile, suppose a man had borrowed some goods, uh, a gentleman's carriage, okay, gentleman's carriage, all right, fine jeweled earrings, uh, and proceeded and surrounded by these, uh, he proceeded through the middle, oh, okay, what happened here, huh? Middle of Apana. Oh, really? Okay, that's what it is. Okay, in middle of Apana. Okay, when people saw him, they would say, "That must be a wealthy man, for that is how the wealthy enjoy their wealth." But when the owners saw him, they would take back those things. What do you think? Would that be enough for that man to get upset? Well, yes, sir. Why is that? Because the owners took back what was theirs. So here the Buddha, yeah, I, I, this is another simile which I really like, the idea of the borrowed goods, yeah, so the sensual objects of the world are like borrowed goods, you have them for the while and then you have to give it up. And uh, this kind of gets to the idea of the illusion of ownership, the illusion that we actually, this is ours, we can control things in our life, yeah, we can have things the way we want them. And, uh, but the reality is that we cannot really 
have things. We cannot control things. Eventually they will be taken away from us. It is very obvious. Very often they get taken away in the course of our life. And if it doesn't get taken away in the course of our life, it will be taken away when we die. We cannot really hold on to these things in the world. We never really own them. Nature owns them. And nature will take them back when the time is right. We don't know when that time is. So a very useful way of thinking about everything you have in your life, whether it's a relationship or your possessions or your status or whatever it is, uh, think of it as something borrowed. Uh, you have it now for a while. How do you treat borrowed things? Uh, do you treat them uh, with with a, uh, Do you treat them as if you own them? This is mine. Don't touch it. Or you, do you treat them differently? Let's say you are renting an apartment. You're only staying there for a couple of months or something. Uh, how do you treat that apartment uh, compared to one that you own? Uh, in a different way. Yeah, You'd think about it in a different way. Uh, you don't put so much of yourself into an apartment uh, if it isn't your own. Uh, yeah? uh, if it is rented, you don't kind of spend so much money on it. Uh, you don't kind of put so much time into making it just right yeah, for yourself. Uh, you have a more balanced approach. You still make it nice, uh, but you don't go over the top uh, because it's only the owner who will gain the benefit uh, of that uh, you know, if you really paint it and make it really nice, uh, the owner will benefit, but not you. Huh? In the same way, you think about the objects of your life in a more neutral way. Huh? These are useful. I need them to survive. Just like you need an apartment, yeah? But you don't over-attach to these things. You don't make them into something more than they actually are. Huh? You remember that nature eventually will have to claim back these things, uh, yeah? And the more you attach in the meantime, uh, the more ownership you uh, you you kind of put into those objects, uh, the more difficult it is uh, when they, you, they will be taken away. The harder it is going to be for you to die. You will not really be able to die peacefully uh, because uh, of that sense of ownership uh, and that uh, difficulty in giving everything up when you eventually you have to die. Uh. So try to see everything in your life as borrowed. Uh, yeah, It changes your attitude quite dramatically, doesn't it? Uh, you borrowed is temporary. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean that you don't look after it. You still look after things, yeah. You're not kind of we're not dodgy people who just because we are renting the car we thrash the car. I mean that would be that's also irresponsible and bad. But you look after it in the but in the right way, in a way you know which is more kind of neutral and balanced, and that is what this is about. And of course, a big part of the problem here is that this person. You can see here the way the simile is described. Yeah, You have these goods, fine jeweled earrings and a gentleman's... I've never seen a gentleman's carrot. That's interesting. I'm not sure why he has translated in that way. This is Bhante Sujato. He always has some eccentric translations. Okay. Uh, <coughs> so, uh, but... Um, the problem is that you identify with that. Yeah, people say, wow, look at that, this person, he's really wealthy. And then you identify with that well. Yeah, that's me, I'm a wealthy person. And the more you identify with it, the more difficult it is to deal with when eventually it has to go. You hear about people who lose all their wealth yeah, on the stock market and they commit suicide afterwards. And the reason why they commit suicide is because they identify so much with that. Uh, that when they lose everything, uh, then it's almost as if they have lost face in the eyes of their, uh, you know, uh, uh, their friends or whatever. Uh, and then they uh, can't carry on and they commit suicide. They jump off a tall building somewhere or something like that. Uh, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Uh, so don't do that. Don't identify with these things. Remember, they are all borrowed goods, uh, and then you can have a more balanced idea about this. Uh. In fact, uh, when we look at life in this uh, new way, uh, and this is where the idea of rebirth also comes in, uh, instead of investing in things that are borrowed in this way, and knowing that they have to be taken away, we invest in those things that we really do own. What are the things that we actually do own, says the Buddha. The Buddha says there's only one thing that we actually own in this world, uh, and that is our kamma. Yeah? The Buddha specifically says we are the owners of our kamma. In the long run, you could argue even the kamma you don't really own, because that too will change, but it's a much, much longer time span. Uh, and that kamma is the good qualities you build up inside of yourself. That's really what kamma is. Uh, yeah? So that is the thing that you carry with you. Uh, so instead of focusing on those temporary things that we have to give up, uh, you start, you change your, what I like to call your investment strategy. Uh, yeah, you invest for the long term rather than for the short term. Uh, 
Yeah, you invest, reminding yourself, well, when I die, what happens in my next life? Do I want to be happy there? Of course I want to be happy there as well. I have to invest in something that carries on beyond the narrow limits of this life. You expand your investment horizon. And what does that mean in practice? Well, in practice, it doesn't necessarily mean an enormous amount of external change necessarily. What it means is just that the way our approach to life is different, as I mentioned before. Yeah, You start to approach the world in a different way. Instead of being obsessed with gaining the worldly pleasures, obsessed with status, obsessed with advancements, obsessed with material things, obsessed with relationships, Instead, you become a little bit more obsessed with the spiritual path. Yeah, that's a kind of good obsession. But even that, don't obsess too much with that either. But you know, that is kind of if you're going to obsess about anything, obsess with the spiritual things. Yeah, how can I be more kind? How can I be a person who, uh, you know, is more whatever it is, generous, kind, caring of others? That is where you should obsess. How can I be more pure in my conduct? How can I deepen my meditation practice? Uh, yeah, that is where you put in the effort. Uh, externally, you may still look like an ordinary person. Uh, you may still live your ordinary life, uh, the same relationship, the same job. Uh, but your attitude to those things is completely transformed. Uh, instead of looking at the outcome, instead of looking at the results, uh, you're looking at the path instead, how to get those results. Uh, the how is much more important than the what. Uh, how do I get there? Yeah, And if you focus on the how, that is what the spiritual practice is about. The how is doing these things in the right way, making your livelihood through acting in the right way towards other people. If you are too focused on the result, it means often you will take shortcuts. Often you will not treat people rightly because the result is so important to you. Yeah, I have to get that promotion. I have to get that relationship. And if that is what all that matters to you, you're going to do dodgy things <laughs> on the way to achieve those ends. Yeah, But if the end, if the goal is how you live rather than actually the goal of the action... That is when things come right and you don't take those shortcuts anymore and you don't you have integrity in the way you live and the way you act. So look at the path. The path, how we do things, is much more important than the results. The results are unpredictable anyway. You never know whether you're gonna make it. Yeah, it's uncertain what the result is gonna be. And because the result is uncertain, it means that if you focus on the path, you will always get something positive out of it regardless. Why? Because you're developing the inner qualities. And in the long run, they are what matter. The external things are not so important. That is true also here for the BSV. Yeah, the BSV is a similar kind of thing. Remember that the results are not so important. It is how we achieve them is actually far more important. So we do things in harmony, yeah, in the good way. And it is so hard to know sometimes what is the right result anyway for a uh, you know, place like this. What actually is the right result? We just don't know very often. Uh, we think we know, but we don't. Uh, and very often you just make the best of whatever you have. Uh, and then you are really on the right track. You make a decision one way or the other, and you make the, make the best of that decision. Uh, but you don't tr you try to avoid too much arguments and disharmony over these things. Uh. So, simile of the borrowed goods, uh, we come to the last simile. Suppose there was a dark forest grove not far from a town or a village, and there was a tree laden with fruit, yet none of the fruit had fallen to the ground. And along came a person in need of fruit, wandering in search of fruit. Having plunged deep into the forest grove, they would see the tree laden with fruit. And they would think, this tree is laden with fruit, yet none of the fruit has fallen to the ground. But I know how to climb a tree. Why don't I climb the tree, eat as much as I like, and then fill my pouch? And that's what they would do. And along would come a second person in need of fruit, wandering in search of fruit, carrying a sharp axe. Having plunged deep into the forest grove, they too would see the same tree, and they too would think, it is laden with fruit, yet none, none of the fruit has fallen to the ground. But I don't know how to climb a tree. 
why don't I chop this tree down at the root, eat as much as I like, then fill my pouch. And so they chop down that tree, down at the root. What do you think, householder? If the first person who has climbed the tree doesn't quickly come down, when the tree fell, wouldn't they break their hand or arm or other limb, resulting in death or death-like suffering for them? Yes, sir. In the same way, a noble disciple reflects with a simile of the fruit tree, the Buddha said that sensual objects or sensory objects give little gratification and much suffering and distress, and they are all the more full of drawbacks. Having truly seen this with right wisdom, they reject equanimity based on diversity and develop only the equanimity based on unity, where all kinds of grasping to the world's material delights cease without anything left over. So you have a dark forest grove, yeah, not far from a town or village, and the dark forest grove is the world of sensory objects, yeah? It's the world that we are living in right now. This is the dark sensory grove, yeah? This here, yeah, this is not this is one of the best parts of the dark sensory grove. There's a bit of a clearing here, yeah, where you come for meditation and you clear out some of the sensory objects. But we're still in that dark sensory grove right now. It is the world of the five senses that we are immersed in at all times. And then we wander around in that grove, yeah, through our lives, going to work, going shopping, doing things, enjoying ourselves, having families or whatever it is. That's the wandering around in that grove of the five senses. And as you wander around in that grove, then you see a tree laden with fruit. Yeah, you go past the car shop and you see a beautiful Ferrari. That's the tree, that's the kind of the... That's the mango yeah, on that tree. Wow, that Ferrari. Or you see a beautiful partner, yeah, someone wonderful, someone just right. And that's also like a mango on that. That's even more so the Ferrari. Who cares about that? But a good partner, right? That's really important in life for most people. Of course it is. And so you see that, uh, you see that fruit on the tree, yeah? And then you think, wow, I know how to kind of, you know, get this partner. So you climb the tree, yeah, you get up in the tree and you start uh, eating the fruit, enjoying, you know, the relationship with your partner, whatever that is. Uh, yeah, that is what this is about. Uh. And as you sit in the top of a tree eating various kinds of fruits, yeah, Ferrari, partner, nice house, the various kinds of fruits, as you keep on enjoying that and indulge in those things, uh, then someone else comes along, yeah, and they think, wow, there's lots of fruits around here. Let me chop this thing down at the root so I can also access some of these things. And so the symbolism here is that when you are in the tree yeah, and you are indulging yourself, at that point you are really blind. Yeah, you don't know. You are intoxicated by the taste of mangoes. Do you get intoxicated by the taste of mangoes? Sometimes you do, yeah, Even as a monk, you think, wow, this mango is really nice. Yeah? So you get a little bit intoxicated, oh, hold back, okay, mindfulness, mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, these fruits can be so nice sometimes. You get intoxicated by it, and as you are intoxicated by indulging in sensual pleasures, it means that you have a vested interest, you are fully immersed in that, you don't have a perspective of what is going on. Yeah, Then someone comes along with the axe, yeah, one day cancer or whatever comes along yeah, and they says, okay, sorry, I'm going to cut this short. Yeah, and bang, before you know it, you are dead uh, while you are in the middle of intoxicating yourself. Uh. And the problem is that while you are intoxicated, uh, the nature of intoxication is such uh, is that we don't really know what we do. Uh. Yeah, that's why drunk people do stupid things. Uh. Yeah, sensual pleasures is just another way of being intoxicated. You're not drunk. You may not be do things that are that stupid, but we still do stupid things because we are intoxicated in one way or another. And that stupid things that we do, again, are often Im immoral things. Yeah, We will do immoral things in the pursuit of sensual objects. That's what almost everyone does to some extent. Yeah, we will lie a little bit here, a little bit there. We will cheat on something a little bit here, a little bit there. This is so common. Almost everyone does this to some extent, and it's always, almost always, in the pursuit of worldly happinesses, whether it's status, 
whether it is the objects of the world, whatever it is. Uh, so the idea here is that before death comes, you need to wake up. Uh, you need to stop indulging in those uh, sensual pleasures so we get a sense of clarity. Death is coming. The axe is coming just up the road, ready to chop down the tree. Uh, let me get out of here uh, before it is too late. Uh, yeah, And then uh, you come out of that. Uh, you climb down the tree. Uh, and where do you go then? Well, the next thing you do then is that you realize that actually I need to get out of this entire grove because this grove makes you blind. You're stuck in this, always searching for new sensual pleasures. I need to somehow extract myself from this grove. And there's a beautiful symbol in the suttas where there's two friends walking along and they come to a hill yeah, or a mountain or it's a hill. And then they come to the bottom of the hill and one friend says to the other one, let's go to the top. And the other one says, nah, I couldn't be bothered walking to the top. Yeah, too much hassle. So the one friend goes to the top, and then he goes to the top and says, wow, when you come to the top of the mountain, you wouldn't believe what you see from the top of the mountain. He's kind of shouting down to his friend at the foot of the mountain. You see meadows, you see villages, you see roads. You have this beautiful overview, this bird's eye view of reality. And then his friend says, nah, I don't believe you. There's no way that you can see those things. And then the other friend gets a bit exasperated and it goes down to the bottom of the mountain, grabs his friend by the arm, pulls him up to the top and says, well, what do you see? And the friend says a bit sheepishly, oh yeah, you're right. I see you know, villages, roads and rivers and you have this bird's eye view. You're quite right about that. Uh, well, how come just before you said you can't be true? And he says, well, I was blinded by this mountain. Uh, and in the simile, the mountain is the mountain of the five hindrances yeah, blocking you. And the main thing of those five hindrances is the hindrance of desire for the sensual objects of the world. This is number one hindrance that actually is the cause, the root hindrance that gives rise to all the other ones usually. So we have to rise above the hindrances. We have to rise above the sensual objects of the world, not having desire for them. Climb the mountain of meditation. Climb the mountain of samadhi. And when you reach that top of samadhi, and then you have the bird's eye view, for the first time in your life, are you able to fully understand the nature of the sensual objects and the sensual pleasures of the world. Now you see what they're like because you have... Uh, kind of lifted yourself out of that jungle uh, and you kind of see the landscape below uh, and you understand what is going on. Uh. So our job in life is to do that, yeah, to kind of gradually emerge from that intoxication with sensual pleasures uh, and emerge, uh, lift ourselves up, allow the mind to soar beyond these things. Uh, so we get above, we get the eagles, the birds eye view from far up, it's like coming in a balloon, soaring up beautifully, uh, having this light and delightful mind uh, that isn't trapped in the heavy sensual pleasures of the world, uh, and then gain an insight into what actually is going on, uh, an understanding of the problem of these things. Uh, yeah, This is the simile here. This is what is going on. Uh. And for those of you who have read some of Ajahn Brahm's books, he has a, it's kind of fascinating because this simile is so similar to what Ajahn Brahm talks about. Yeah, You may remember Ajahn Brahm talks about this story where he travels in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, this is in uh, Mexico yeah, or Guatemala. And he travels to the ancient Mayan pyramids uh, that they have in, the, in that area of the world. Uh, and when you, these Mayan pyramids were like religious monuments. Uh, and uh, they would often take people to the top of that pyramid. And at that time, this was back in the 1970s, I think, early 70s, uh, there was no, it was very easy. You could just get straight access. You could climb those pyramids to your heart's delight. There was no guards or entrance fees or anything like that. If you go there now, it would be a very different thing, I think. Yeah. And uh, so Ajahn Brahm said that. And he, could, uh, he said he could understand the religious significance of those pyramids. Uh, because for the first time in their life, people would climb the pyramid uh, and they were able to see the landscape below her. Uh, they would emerge from the jungle that was so thick uh, and they would be able to see to the horizon, see the rivers, uh, see the paths, uh, get that bird's eye view from above. Uh, and that's why these were religious monuments uh, because it gave you a different perspective on existence. Uh, and that is exactly what happens in Samadhi. Uh, it gives a different perspective on the world. Uh, you have, for the first time, you have emerged from the world of the sensory objects uh, and we can see what they really are for the very first time uh, yeah that is kind of the idea of the simile here uh. so not 
to be intoxicated by those things. Uh, remembering to have mindfulness, remembering to have clarity of the mind. Yeah, this is kind of the purpose, the idea behind this. Uh, and when you have a degree of clarity of mind, uh, then gradually you can withdraw from that deluding world uh, of vested interest uh, in the sensual objects of existence. Anyway, there you are. So this is all a little bit more about right view, how to think about the world in different ways. And uh, I so hopefully you can see what is going on here. I'm sure you can because uh, uh, it is not that hard to get some feeling for what is going on. Remember, these things are to be uh, reflected upon. That's the purpose of these things. Uh, and uh, as you do so, hopefully you gradually gain a deeper insight into this. Uh, that's it for now. So let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock. Yeah.